Good morning, Westridge. How you doing? Uh, I was just thinking about unresolved dilemmas from my childhood, which I'm sure you're interested in, uh, under the heading of abnormal psychology. And one of the things that I have not really ever resolved was, which was the better band, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Okay, all right, come on. Uh, I didn't ask you to resolve it. I said, I'm trying to resolve it. And the way, the way I'm living with it right now is they're just two different bands. It's not comparing apples with apples. Uh, but one thing I never did figure out growing up in the 60s and 70s is why the church didn't use some of their songs in order to present biblical truth. Because back then I knew their songs better than I knew the Bible. Take, for example, the Stones' Satisfaction. They sing of the plight of a poor young man, and though he tries, and he tries, and he tries, and he tries, he still can't get no, well, you know, satisfaction. And how about the Beatles can't buy me love, huh? You've you got to admit, they're a bit more poetic than the Stones. Say you don't need no diamond rings, and I'll be satisfied. Uh, tell me that you want the kind of things that money just can't buy. I don't care too much for money, because money can't buy me love. Here's something that hasn't changed uh, over the years. Just about everyone wants a life of satisfaction. And in a world where 99 out of 100 questions, the answer to 99 out of 100 questions is money, the question remains, where do we find love and satisfaction? We've got some choices when it comes to experiencing life. We get to choose our attitude. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in this passage from Corinthians. Take a look at it. It's rather extended, but hang with me uh, and work through it with me as as we look at it right now. Now, friends, I want to report on the surprising and generous ways in which God is working in the churches in Macedonia province. Fierce troubles came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. Now, sidebar... We're not the only church to experience tough economic times. Let's get a bit of a historical perspective here. Their trial exposed their true colors. Trials always do that. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected, an an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. I was there. I saw it for myself. They gave offerings of whatever they could, far more than they could afford, pleading for the privilege of helping out in the relief of poor Christians. This was totally spontaneous, entirely their own idea, and caught us completely off guard. What explains it was that they had first given themselves unreservedly to God and to us. And the other giving simply flowed out of the purposes of God working in their lives. And then in the very next chapter, that was chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, chapter 9. This is uh, from the message, by the way. He writes, 
Remember, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop. A lavish planter gets a lavish crop. I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. I love the way Peterson captures that phrase, you know. And, and who among us haven't heard a sob story or a twisted arm to try and get us to give money to something? God loves it when the giver delights in giving. Now, here's the context for this passage. The church in Jerusalem was experiencing tough economic times. And Paul, who's writing these words, had been starting churches all over the region. And he had appealed to the church in Macedonia to help the Jerusalem church, to help out in their tough economic times. And the Macedonian church replied so generously, responded so generously, that Paul tells the Corinthian church, to whom he's writing this letter, that they could learn a thing or two from this Macedonian church. Okay, you with me so far? Jerusalem's having trouble, Macedonia helps out, and then Paul writes to Corinth and says, you know, they're an example that you should follow. I'm guessing we could learn a thing or two from the Macedonian church example also. The secret of this amazing example, I think, is that they had settled some key issues. And I'm guessing until we settle some key issues in our life, we may be singing can't get no satisfaction for quite a long time. So let's look at the five key areas that, that the Apostle Paul writes about here in these two passages in Corinthians. They are issues about which we will need to make some decisions as we choose our attitude about life, love, and satisfaction. Here's the first one. Priority or problems? What's the example of the, of the Macedonians here? He says, out of their severe trial, their extreme poverty, what'd they do? Circle the wagons? They gave because they made it a priority. They didn't let the fact that they had problems preclude them from being generous givers. In this world, you will have troubles, Jesus said. And so if we wait until everything is perfect, everything is settled, all your financial issues are resolved, you'll never give anything to anyone. Now, since I work with a lot of churches around the country to help them raise capital for their ministry needs, I've had some interesting conversations the last couple years. And most of the conversations go something like this. Why are we trying to raise money in such a bad economy? Don't you watch the news? Unemployment is high. People are losing benefits. They're losing their health care. On and on it goes. And I can't deny any of that. Worst economy in my lifetime hasn't left me unaffected either. But I cannot believe that the purposes of God are bounded on every side by the American economy and set on my thumbs till it gets better. We're not the only church that has been giving in bad times. Problems can bury us, cause us to lose focus of our priorities. We can allow those problems to become excuses. This is not a good time. Things will calm down later. Later they'll be different. They'll be different later. 
Uh-uh. Are you going to go to your grave believing that someday it's going to be easy to be a generous giver with the resources God has given you? If it was easy, everyone would be generous. It's not, and most aren't. But it starts with this realization, that I have to choose to start now with what I have, with what I can give, large or small. The Macedonians here, Paul says, gave out of their poverty and severe trials. Here's issue number two to decide. Opportunity or obligation. The Macedonians, Paul said, he says, entirely on their own, urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service with the saints. Now, I got to tell you, I, as I visit churches I don't have too many people tugging on my coattails saying, can I give more? Please, please, give me, just give me an opportunity to give more. That's what happened here. Those who've experienced this principle, they understand that giving to a worthy cause results in the kind of lasting satisfaction that you can't get anywhere else. Those who have this attitude see giving as an opportunity to get in on what God is up to. I learned early on in my ministry not to take an opportunity away from someone who, who wanted to give. I was in a church that was raising money for a new building. And uh, so we were taking commitments over and above regular giving for this building project, just like this church did when we moved from the community college to this building. And we had quite a few unchurched people attending, and I didn't want them to feel any pressure whatsoever to give. And the result is we didn't mail commitment cards to those that we uh, thought didn't consider this their church home. And one of the very people that I didn't want to offend, and thus I didn't send a commitment card to him, uh, happened to be a Jewish man who had just started attending. First time attending any church, let alone our church. The first time in his life. And so I didn't want to offend him. I, I just wanted to take that opportunity away from him. He came up to me and said, why'd you leave me out? I want to get in on the privilege of helping this church move forward. And that's the tenor and the tone of this passage in Corinthians, and I might add, this church. You don't have to give a dime of your money or a minute of your time. And no one will ever harass you for that. But you will miss out on the opportunity of a lifetime because God is up to some pretty exciting things around here. Issue number three. Who's really in control? What did the Macedonians do? Uh, Paul says, they gave themselves first to the Lord. Now, being generous with the resources entrusted to me is not a matter of just writing a check or giving up an evening. Because giving is, first of all, a spiritual issue before it's a financial issue. The ultimate issue in being generous is settling this issue. Who's the Lord of my life? Or another way of saying it is, who's really in control? Who's defining reality for me? Where is my source of satisfaction and love and fulfillment in this life? An old pastor used to say, you can say no, and you can say Lord, but you can't say no, Lord. And when that issue is settled, it's no longer how much do I have to give, it's how good of a manager can I be so I can... Give more. Issue number four. 
What does community mean? Again, the example of the Macedonians. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. It's okay to give individually to worthy causes. But when you give to this church as an active participant in community, you're making a statement about who you are, who others are, and what the watching world has to say about this church. When we pool our collective resources, they become more than they otherwise would have been. And we bond together as a family in a way that we never could have otherwise. When the early church began, the book of Acts, Luke talks about how individual members of the faith community sold pieces of property and gave it to the greater good of the community of faith. And it highlights the fact that we need each other. And when we give to this community of faith as an active participant, it's a statement of unity toward the watching world. Issue number five. Can money buy me love? That is to say, does fulfillment in life come from acquiring or giving? And the proof is evidenced by the use of our financial resources. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your Heart will be also. And you want to get past all the rhetoric and know for a fact what you love. Follow the money. Let's drain out all the God talk, all the church language, all the empty chatter. Not only do you need to know where your money is so you can budget wisely, you need to know where your money is so you can know what condition your heart's in and where your heart is. Jesus tells us that uh, we all find out the same way when we look at where we put our treasure. It's a window into our spiritual life. When our youngest daughter was a preschooler, uh, she was playing with her cousin Chelsea. And, uh, and so she runs into the room with a look of certainty on her face. And she tells me, matter-of-factly, Chelsea doesn't like me. Yes, she does. No, she doesn't. Why? Because she doesn't share her toys with me. Doesn't matter how much you say you love God or how much you say you love other people. Unless we share our toys, nobody's going to believe us. When we make choices about these five issues, make giving a priority, give because of the opportunity, decide who's in control, live in community and decide that money can't buy me love, but it can express my love, we create within ourselves the capacity to receive the grace of God. The Apostle Paul says in this passage, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. That's what I think I'd like people to say about this faith community more than anything else. They have the grace of of God. Now, the root word grace is the same as the word gift. And certain things result when we get gift of God, the gifts of God, the grace of God. And both things are very satisfying. Here's the first thing that happens in our life. We actually make a difference. There's a very unusual statement in our text. It says the Macedonians gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Now, how can you go beyond your ability? And the answer is you can't unless you have the grace of God. 
When the grace of God is in your life, your gifts become more. You make a difference. We desperately want to make a difference in this world. When we develop the right attitude about our financial generosity, we receive the grace of God and God blesses what we would make available beyond what we could otherwise have done with it. One of my favorite stories about this is about Helen Douglas. She was the poorest lady in her church where she attended. She lived in government housing. She drove a car that looked like it was going to fall apart at any moment. And the church at that particular time was facing a $50,000 bill that they had not anticipated in order to finish their new building. And so they decided to take up a a large one-day offering to address the need. And uh, Helen had prayed about that. She'd even fasted in preparation for this big one-day offering. And the day came and the plate was passed to Helen and she merely passed it and handed it to the person seated next to her. But she heard God say, "Uh, Helen, you didn't put anything in the plate. She said, God, you obviously have not noticed. I'm a poor lady. I don't have anything. And God said, well, Helen, what do you have to give? And she rummaged through her purse. She dug up all the cash she could find, put it in an envelope, sealed it, dropped it in the plate. Now, she was walking out, following the service. She handed it to the pastor, and she said, you know, pastor, this is all i got to give, literally. And the pastor was thinking of the magnitude of the need, $50,000, the circumstances of Helen, and he said what some of us would be tempted to say, Helen, you know, just really, just keep it, I understand. And Helen said, you don't understand. I'm not giving this to you. I'm giving this to God. And so the pastor went home, he opened up the envelopes, and he counted it. And in the end, the envelope was $3.30. And he thought to himself, today I've seen the widow's might. That night at church, it was discovered that they had met their goal. And the pastor wanted to tell people about the story of Helen Douglas. He thought it'd be an encouragement. Today, the biggest gift was $3.30. And he was right. Well, at that time, one of the men in the church stood up and he said, Pastor, I'll give you... $10 for one of those pennies in that envelope right now. He brought his $10 bill forward, and others in the room started to do the same. And in 10 minutes, the $3.30 offering became a $3,300 offering. Little is much when our attitude is right and we have the grace of God. We make a difference. We also get something else. When we make these decisions and when we get the grace of God, money can actually become funny. That's what Paul says in that next chapter. God loves a cheerful giver. You've probably heard that before. Hilarious giver. Our giving is a matter of satisfaction. And would you agree life is more satisfying when you're laughing and enjoying yourself? And would you agree there are plenty of opportunities to give? When you settle these important issues that we've talked about today, you find that you can receive an unexpected gift from God. The ability to actually laugh about giving. Not that it's unimportant or inconsequential. It's just it is no longer uptight, tense, clenched clenched fist about giving, neck veins bulging. You're not giving because of sob stories. You're not giving... Because someone's twisted your arm. You're giving because you actually enjoy it. You've got a new perspective about it. And we know today that laughter has 
profound physiological effects on us. Releases hormones, alleviates pain, other discomfort. So, you know, if you're in pain here this morning, then have a good laugh and drop some money in the plate. <laughs> Go ahead. Try it. Lighten up a little bit. It's only money. And it can't buy you love. But it can bring you satisfaction. Now, there are three groups that I want to leave three takeaways with this morning. There are those of you in this room probably that are giving proportionately and consistently. And you've heard what I've said today. And you you would say, I've settled those issues. And I, I get what you mean. It's fulfilling. It's satisfying. It's not uptight, tense. No one's making me. I want to take advantage of the opportunity. And for, for you, I want to say, keep it up. Stay on track. Keep it up. Stay faithful. There are others perhaps in this room, because of this tough economy, and through no fault of your own, you played by the rules and you still got really whacked. To you, I want to say, look up. God's not finished with you or this world yet. Don't look out. Don't look to economic or political solutions. Look up to God. There may be a third group in here, and it's those of you who could give proportionately or consistently, and you just aren't at all anything. And to you, I just simply want to say, give it up. You've tried, and you've tried, and you've tried, and you've tried to get satisfaction on your own terms. Come on. Get in on the grace of God. Make a difference. Get funny with your money. Think it over and decide what you'll give. If you're one of those random or non-existent persons when it comes to giving... Pick a number and be consistent for six months and see what happens. But whatever you do, please tell me you want the kind of things that money just can't buy.